1: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. In her new book, Skin Theory, Visual Culture and the Postwar Prison Laboratory from NYU Press, Christina Vesperis offers a model of an abolitionist approach to STS and the history of the life sciences. And it's kind of what I needed right now. So by now, this is well known. During the 1960s, scientists with faculty appointments at Penn and with contracts from pharmaceutical companies did experiments on captive men at Philadelphia's Holmesburg Prison. Building on this documentary work, Vesperis turns attention to the prison experiment's optical rationality, or the way of seeing images that came out of the space that was simultaneously a prison and a laboratory. Despair shows how skin operated as a scientific apparatus, and she also uses skin as a metaphor for how science makes race visible, and yet it leaves racism as a void. So at its core, the book asks, what is the relationship between science and the project of freedom? and it hopes towards a reparative bioethics that dismantles scientific racism and the prison nation that it upholds. This interview was a collaborative effort among myself, Laura Stark, and the graduate students at Vanderbilt University in the seminar Critical Bioethics. Well, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University, and the graduate students in the course Critical Bioethics. And it's a real pleasure to be talking today with Christina Vesperis, the author of the new book *Skin Theory: Visual Culture and the Postwar Prison Laboratory*. Um, and just in terms of the nuts and bolts, this book is about the Holmesburg Prison in Pennsylvania, and about the long-term and uh, wide range changing research of uh, Dr. Kligman, who was a dermatologist, um, uh, well-known at this point. Um, he was specifically a specialist in fungal infections, but I think some of um, his work has been best known through the uh, work and the testimony of Ellen um, Hornsbloom and the book Acres of Skin and, and the more recent book that came out of that. Um, What's remarkable as you sort of recite in the introduction of this book is that 33 pharmaceutical companies had contracts at this prison for research that around 85 to 90% of the prison population was black and three quarters of the prison population was used in medical experiments. Um, And what you wanna do in this book, um, as we were reading it, sort of coming from a critical bioethics and an STS perspective, was also think in the direction of media studies and what you um, what you're referring to as the optical rationality that's undergirding the experiments. Um, And so the organizing question for the book is about science and the project of freedom Mm -hmm. and thinking about how scientific racism persists. And you had this very moving um, quotation in the introduction that the atrocity of scientific racism is not that it happened, but that it happened again and again. And so you're interested in this optical rationality, um, to try to understand how scientific racism can be built into, um, the, the core of a lot of scientific work. So in this book, you hold together two institutions, the prison and the scientific laboratory. And in Holmesburg, the two come together, um, So I wonder if you could start us off then by talking about skin and thinking through the title of the, of the book, skin theory. So how does skin constitute an object of all of the gazes of the, of the wardens of the scientists? And at the same time, how does it structure those gazes?
1: Wow yeah so skin is a pretty fluid as an object in the book and um i'll start by first uh talking about the um frameworks that brought me to analyze skin in in the particular way I did for the book. One is that I am trained in science and technology studies, and in that field, um, we don't simply critique scientific practice from the outside. For example, we we don't simply make arguments like. Um, here is a culture that is racist or sexist, and then, of course, that is going to filter down into the science that is done. Instead, we look at science as a culture that you could already see in the very practice. It reproduces these uh, forms of oppression, right? It doesn't need this external influence, that it is kind of shaping our social and natural world uh, uh, on its own as it's an active participant in in that shaping, so that was one framework. The other framework was prison abolition, uh, spearheaded by the work of Black feminist activists and advocates and and uh, researchers and scholars. And prison abolition is is pretty systemic in, in its definition of change. It's not simply about getting rid of buildings, uh, prison buildings. It is talking. thinking about the rest of society how we can transform social relationships that move away from punishment or punitive responses to to harm and so with those frameworks uh, I brought that into this project and I was thinking okay um I'm gonna get down to the actual science that was being done or at least how um Kligman and his team were communicating it in their publication. So going through their actual methods and seeing how um, racism was uh, an internal part was was a uh, was a logic that drove uh, a lot of their questions. Um, and it was very important to me that their that their experiments weren't ha- didn't really have anything to do with race. They weren't recapitulating questions like are. Um, are uh, Black people biologically inferior? Are white people biologically superior? They weren't rehashing those questions. They um, And yet their experiments were deeply racist. And so uh, the only way to, um, to make that argument was to go into the methods. And prison abolition that is looking at um, process and not just, you know, get, you know, Buildings um, helps that, and I think it is it, it it's it's conducive to kind of uh, having an STS framework um, um, uh, um, done. Also, I, I saw them as working together in the analysis. And so when I looked at skin, yes, I was looking at skin as an as an actual thing, right? How it became an apparatus, how it how it was a sort of visual medium for screening, for example, pain, or screening changes in skin color in response to an agent that was uh, put on the skin. But I was also thinking about skin a little bit more theoretically. Skin, um, the ways that skin is... Um, has all of these connotations of intimacy and and borders and and touching and and in, in that sense, a, you skin is a very important part of um, subject formation. That our the, that our physical appearance marks us in certain ways in society, and so this is a way of sort of making that move of like, here is skin as a as an objective reality and how it is being taken up in an experiment but then also how this this experiment reproduces all the ways that we talk about physical appearance and and skin and the people that are in those skin, how all of that is um, also informing uh, the practice of science.
2: That's really helpful. Yeah, and in thinking about the relevance of the two institutions of incarceration and science, um, one of the things we really appreciated is how you're um, showing us the ways in which captives skin in particular brings together the invisibility so the incarceration the captive aspect and vis- visibility so the scientific work in which there's um you know, as you repeat drawing on people like uh, Dustin and Gallison the um the visual bias of the sciences in making things visual in order to make truth and so skin is this this spot in within prisons in which there's both this invisibility and this and this hypervisibility of science as well. Um in chapter 1 you really s- expand on this both how the the visibility and the invisibility are simultaneous in the work of Kligman by showing us the way that skin operates as an apparatus. And you're specifically um bringing back in photographs that Clickman took in his research that were kind of extreme Mm close-ups of the skin of Black men in the prison that had been um, exposed to chemicals that actually changed the pigment, the pigmentation of the skin. And in thinking about the um, black skin as an apparatus, w- what you show us is that even though the viewer is looking at skin, it's not what you're supposed to be seeing. And so it kind of becomes invisible. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be like looking at a picture of a microscope instead of yes. you know the output, the results mm-hmm. that the right. microscope is showing. So you're staring right at it and yet not seeing what's outside of the frame, which is that this is a person who is Black within a, the prison, the broader prison system, um, how it's both apparent and completely concealed in the, the visual methods that are being used. So building on this, um, Justin um, had some really interesting thoughts about this issue of intimacy that the photographs were um, were building from and drawing on and just the possibility of intimacy in these photographs. Justin, take it away.
1: So, in class, one of the things we talked about was how the bureaucratic nature of the prison experiments really made them seem like impersonal and disconnected. But on the other hand, as we sort of touched on just now, was Chapter One made the argument that the zoomed in pictures of the experiments in the records and textbooks are extremely intimate. Um, does that intimacy go away if the pictures are zoomed out, or do you think? Both the impersonal and intimate natures can coexist. That's a very good. Uh, question. And I remember when I was writing that part of the book, I was drawing on a feminist scholarship talking about, um, you know, close-ups in, in, you know, film, for example. What is what is the point of the close-up? It's to bring the person closer to the subject of the image, creating um, this sense of intimacy, right? Trying to get, get, um, explode this distance between the viewer and the subject of of the, of the gaze. Um, but here, you know, these experiments were co- being conducted in prisons, where the notion of autonomy is just completely non existence So what is the role of skin in a context where you can't rely on it as a form of bounding the self, right? The prison is a space where someone just loses that sense of Autonomy of self-determination, and this can be seen in the ways that they are then deployed for scientific research, and we can see it in the actual visual imagery that is produced in in science. But here's the thing: a lot of laboratory work, a lot of visualizations that occur in labs, they are close-ups. We, you know, laboratory work tends to look at very, very, very small things, and so they can't help uh, but be close-ups. Um, and so here, I'm I'm talking about um, a a standard practice of visualization that happens to coincide with this um, sort of invasion of a subject, right? The loss of autonomy, the loss of borders that can be construed as intimate, yes, because you are the the scientific gaze is being brought closer to the subject of that gaze but instead of but it's 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 a very disturbing kind of intimacy it's colonizing it's a it's it's a touch that is unwelcome and that is coerced and so um that's uh, that is what i was trying to uh get at when i was talking about the uh, the what intimacy might be in these images
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I should say that the tests that you're looking at of Clickman's in chapter one, in particular on skin as an apparatus are um, ones that are probably best known to many people um, as retin-A and mm-hmm. various forms of acne and wrinkle treatments. So they're really common and really familiar. And what you're showing is the way in which um, black bodies in particular were um, kind of instrumentalized for pharmaceutical production that was ultimately geared towards a white market in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you, you're you clear and you, you show in the, the photographs themselves that white skin was also a uh, part of the visual apparatus and it was u- used in the experiments um, almost in this teleological way in which you would have these experiments done on the um, on black skin to maximize the witnessing to the exposure, the change that the the medication could make to the color of the skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's market potential, it's success for um, for white bodies. And in chapter two, um, this is it seems like they're nice mates. Chapter one and chapter two because you're you're still focusing on this um, visibility invisibility of um, science, scientific uses of captive skin. In chapter two, which is called skin problems, and in this this chapter you're you're still thinking of skin as an apparatus but you're looking at the way that skin was explicitly racialized um and in these experiments you're showing us the um studies that were done on allergens in particular and you're pointing out sort of on the issue of intimacy that what the photographs were showing what were these um uh bodies that were not happy were not comfortable they were um, having an allergic reaction that was intentional that was given that was given to them and so even though there is this real close up there's absolutely no empathetic possibility mm-hmm. in the, those photographs even though it's clear that it's a it's a source of harm for this for the skin which klingman acknowledges and actually comes to harness um that is, that is a form of harm and pain. And so on the issue of pain, I'm going to hand it over to Sonali.
1: Yes. So in chapter two, you write, whereas the skin of black prisoners constituted a favorable, favorable medium for seeing white when it came to making and viewing images of pain, black skin hampered per- perception. Can you explain for listeners how were other races and ethnicities um, seen in terms of pain? Yes, uh, of course, thank you for that question. So in chapter one, I was uh, making that argument that, you know, um, the skin is an apparatus. And when an apparatus is working just fine, you don't really notice it, right? This is something that is kind of talked a lot about in STS is that when the apparatus breaks down, that's when you notice it. And that's what I was trying to talk about in chapter two, right? Um, All of a sudden, this visual apparatus stops working as a visual apparatus when the thing that is being visualized is pain. So in this case, black skin was configured as not being a good screen for visualizing pain, but white skin is better than, is better for that because how scientists defined uh, pain in these studies is mainly redness, pinkness, um, and so if the, my book focuses a lot on um, Black skin because it is situated at Holmesburg um, and a majority of the prisoners at Holmesburg were Black. But um, this this was a chapter that is very much in conversation with other literature talking about this long history of ignoring pain um, um, in communities of color more broadly. Why is it that, um, the, I think the phrase we call it now is uh, medical gaslighting, and it's usually talked about in terms of uh, of women across races, that when women go to their doctors, their complaints of pain are not taken seriously. Um, but this, um, this uh, particular chapter is speaking to that history where um, People of color, in general, when their complaints of 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 pain, of of illness, are dismissed. Um, and here I am looking specifically at the skin, again, showing that, um, you know, this, this isn't a science being or a medical science being negatively influenced by a racist culture, it is also the the culture of medical science itself is, is racist. And so, of course, it's going to have, it's going to produce scientific knowledge, um, and metrics about pain and illness, that privilege, privileges whiteness or centers harm uh, done to white people. The chapter also
2: um, in terms of the the STS and how it wants to think about um, the STS literature and how it wants to think about harm and the um, sort of the injustices that continue to be done on black and brown bodies by taking Mm -hmm. the, the white as white code, a white mm-hmm. category, as the anchoring codes um, for these studies. Um, you also show the way in which um, the misbehaving skin and mm-hmm. even misbehaving prisoners mm-hmm. are showing us something about how agency works. And you, you have some nice thoughts on the challenges of Feminist STS post-humanism and that whole literature in this chapter, given that um, uh, the dehumanization of people in prisons, in many um, medical and scientific experiments is so apparent and nothing that we would want to um, minimize. Mm -hmm. And so I I was kind of curious to know how you end up um, lining up yourself on the feminist STS, post-humanism literature, given your own concerns about mm. humanizing effects of this work. So, so yeah, what do you, what do you think? What's your current thinking? Oof, hard.
1: Um, uh, so the feminist post-humanist work, and I, I'm not the only one who's writing about this, but this sort of flight from the human to multi-species or the agency of things, for example. Um, and I didn't know how to sort of engage with that work, because when I think about agency of things, I, I, I'm, I've am i always been wondering, how do we uh, theorize agency of uh, dehumanized humans of uh, people who are rendered animal or people who are rendered. Tech, you know, things like I talk about in, in my book, what is the agency of the thing there? And the problem is, well, then do we just expand the category of the human to include more humans? And, and in that case, then um, we, we say that they have agency, or can we look at this particular space, for example, like the prison and rethink the human from that space, rethink agency from that space. And we see that it's um, not easy to do that. It's not easy to theorize agency and empowerment in a space where those things are troubled, if not non-existent. Okay, that's where I am. Sorry, okay. was that an answer? <laughs>
2: yes. So, so I take it to be um, uh, at least one eyebrow raised to the, post, the feminist post-humanist literature?
1: I, I will say this, I will say this, it's, um. well, do we want to theorize, uh, do we want to Im- imagine agency in a prison or do we want to dismantle the prison? Um, so um, the agency that would come from the prison would probably be reaching towards dismantling. So a, a bioethics that would be more in line with the principles of prison abolition.
2: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so building building on this issue, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Sitlali.
1: Yes. Um, so the images used in your book really showcase the dichotomy between what is experienced in prison medicine versus what was shown in the media. While the media perceived prisoners' work as helpful and empowering, prisoners were suffering both physically and emotionally. You also discussed um, that the research subjects would skew the experiments, making Klickman's research work useless. Um, could the experimentation have led to Black prisoners reclaiming their bodies by creating this economic loss? Yeah. So that's a good question. It's um, that's another question about agency, right? The reclamation of the body. I, I really like that uh, phrase. Um, uh, as I wrote about it in my book, it's it. When 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 prisoners would take off the patches on their skin, um, they took them off in response to um the denial of their pain they would complain that they were in pain and because it didn't seem like uh, the doctors or the technicians cared about it they sort of took the patches off because they were in pain and I think there's something um I think there's something generative about that the action of taking those patches off simply to um feel better, not to, you know, quote unquote, stick it to the man, maybe, maybe that was a motivation. I I don't know. Um, uh, Maybe it was an exercise of, um, of, of agency in the sense that they are trying to get back at the doctors who are hurting them. You know, that could be a motivation. Um, I don't know. The only thing I know is that they took it off because they were in pain. And I think that itself, um, it it, it might look like uh, an unsatisfying theory of agency. But I think there's something there. I use a lot of Fanon in in that book, and in Fanon's work, both in Black Skin, White Masks and Wretched of the Earth, he talks about how um, colonized subjects would um, erupt in violence against their colonizers, not because of this. Um, dream of a utopian future, decolonized future, uh, uh, not because they have a sophisticated understanding of, of liberty, you know, but simply because at that moment, they couldn't stand it anymore. Um, In one of his books, he uses the phrase, they can't breathe. Um, And so I was thinking a lot about that when I was, when I was writing about how the prisoners were taking their patches off, they were just they. It's because they were simply in pain. And and so what what does that agency mean, right? An agency that doesn't reach for utopic visions of freedom, but just simply this needs to stop right now. This episode
0: is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and the, the book really has as a through line Fanon's work and, um, specifically Finon's discussion, um, of epidermalization mm-hmm. of race. And so I've, I've really liked Simone Brown's work, uh, work on that. And I yes. especially like given the way you're you're theorizing skin as an apparatus, how you're taking phenon and um, using it as a way to um, think in terms of American anti-black racism. Um, So it's really, um, really, really helpful, very generative. And, the the chapters that anchor the book um around skin. So chapters one and chapter two are so um wide-ranging in terms of the the levels that they're showing us of the prisoner and the way the ways in which um they images are reproduced in different kinds of um visual culture and and um and materials. And some of them are in mass media and mm-hmm ones that um you show in the book in particular are highlighting the way in which the Holmesburg prison experiments were actually um known about they were written about to a mass audience mm-hmm. and it was in terms of the um the re- rehabilitative effects of the work that was being done and showing how prisoners were both Um, serving as test subjects, but they were also doing things um, like serving as the the technicians in the research as well. And so building on this uh, issue, I'm going to hand it over to Halcyon.
1: In class, we have
2: discussed topics like social control, During the Holmesburg prison experiments, prisoners were not only used as test subjects, but they were also administering many of the tests. Mm -hmm. If inmates were not included in the oversight of experiments in the prison system, would the Holmesburg trials have lasted as long as they did? I'm thinking here about their role in surveillance and monitoring each other. Without prison workers, experiments would not have had that extra level of surveillance that imposed normative behavior. Uh, experiments would have been more expensive, and they also would have been less efficient. I'd like to hear your thoughts on um, prisoners' role in biopower.
1: Thank you for that question. Oh yes, this was uh this was very. Um, that's a very good question. In Alan Hornblum's book, he also mentions that some of his technicians were probably responsible for some of the images that I analyze in my book. Um, we don't know because sometimes, um, you know, um, uh, when it comes to attributing uh, credit for labor uh, and, and getting credit for it in published scientific papers like the Journal of Dermatology. Um, or the annals of dermatology, um, you know, uh the the credit given to prisoners is always when they subjected their bodies to um to to studies, n- never that they were the technicians that helped these um um these studies uh come to fruition. And so there's uh issues of recognizing labor there. Whether I I'm not sure if these um if these studies would have lasted longer if it didn't have the um, the uh, captive technicians um it relied on, you're right. It would have probably cost more to uh, get uh, free folks to to do the a lot of this technical administrative work. Um, prison labor is cheap. Um, but it this this also sort of, kind of showed you how integral the program uh became in the prison um holmesburg is not unique in this a lot of prison programs uh, a lot of prisons didn't have you know uh jobs programs the jobs that they had wouldn't have paid all that much the remuneration for uh participating in uh, tests, wh- whether as a subject or as a technician, is a lot more than these um, uh, jobs in in, in prisons. Um, and so the uh, Holmesburg uh, economy started to run, started to center this, uh, this, this program. Um, so uh, it might be that it might not have lasted as long if, if, you um, if they, if they didn't think to use the prisoners as technicians. But yes, that was the driving, that was one of the narratives of rehabilitation, that these prisoners who are technicians, um, they are acquiring um, important job skills, and they are also um, learning um, how to become productive members of society. So inculcating in them a certain sentiment that would, perhaps help them um, uh, return to their communities when when they become free. Um, But again, all of this is just um, like official discourse about the motivations of prisoner technicians and subjects. Um, uh, Most of these prisoners were not Yet charged with any crime. They were in prison because they, di- they didn't have the money to raise bail. And so it could be that the prisoners were there just to, to raise money. And so um, the economic um, demands uh, the, of the prisoners kind of run up against this rehabilitative uh, narrative of, of, the, of the prison research program.
2: Yeah. And in chapter three, um, you actually take us to think about um, the skin of architecture. So you take us Mm -hmm. to the site of, of Holmesburg itself, and you show how um, this narrative has a very long history. So Mm -hmm. you give us the history of what's called the Pennsylvania model. Um, And this is the idea of work and collective Mm -hmm. labor, as well as solitary confinement, so Mm -hmm. that there's no... um, uh, moral collective degeneration, quote unquote, that mm-hmm. um, this Pennsylvania model um, around the rehabilitative effects of work, um, mm-hmm. you know, has begun going on for a very long time. So Holmesburg itself was built in, uh, 1896. It's on 17 acres and it was modeled on Eastern state. And so that, that, that means it's officially a panopticon. I think if that's, if that's correct.
1: It's, it's almost like one. Yes. The hub and spoke design. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and one of the things that you're doing in this chapter when um is to take us through your own visit to mm-hmm. Holmesburg and to think about haunting mm-hmm. um, and the ghosts of Holmesburg and also just that it was full of garbage yes and so thinking through the concept of the ruin in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways and it brings us back to um i think one of the key points of the book which is the the gaps of memory and how your aim is not necessarily to um, fill in gaps and reclaim some memory, but to point out where these holes in memories exist. and And the memory is one of sort of the reality of scientific racism. So could you just take us through your visit to the prison?
1: Um, when I first heard that the prison was still around, I was very intrigued. Um, my first uh, visit to the prison, I I didn't look up anything about uh, the prison. I kind of wanted to see what my first impressions were. I just, but, um, you know, when you it's it's open during the summer months, you have to sign a waiver saying that if any structure falls on you. Um, you you won't sue the city because it is quite dilapidated, and that's what I wasn't really uh, expecting. Outside the prison looks like a fortress. You know, it's it looks like a medieval fortress. No one's getting in, no one's getting out, and inside everything is just crumbling. And I didn't know how to analyze the space because I was going in there thinking I'm going to see the lab that I've been you know theorizing outside of the space for a whole time I'm going to see the lab and I came in and I'm like uh everything is falling apart you know I'm having literally in that space trouble visualizing um visualizing the lab that I was theorizing um and so but there were a lot of photographers there um and they would make jokes like hey you know did you see a ghost yet or um are you scared and when they started saying that i did become scared you know um the the prison guards there don't follow you around while you while you're in the prison and so you spend a lot of time on your own actually and there are some crevices that are pretty dark the 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 prison guard there told me not to go anywhere that is kind of locked off but i'm small physically and so that didn't mean anything to me because I could get around, you know, things that are blocked off. Um, but uh, uh, after that visit, I was very um, kind of downtrodden because I didn't know how to hold on to this idea of a lab when that is no longer what the prison was. Um, and then I found out that artists had kind of um, approached the space um, in in very unique ways. They would photograph it, yes, but um, they would also make attempts to preserve the walls uh the graffiti of uh, of the space um and I uh, realized that in a lot of their commentary on their own artwork, they would talk about Kligman's work. They would talk about uh, the, the skin of the prisoners and make comparisons between that and the crumbling walls of Holmesburg. And here I thought, oh, here's another archive. So in addition to analyzing the scientific publications that Kligman and his team put out, I could also analyze this Artistic archive, the cultural artifacts that continue to preserve Holmesburg in our memory. And so that was a different, I would say it was a different kind of analysis that was called for there. I think this is a chapter where I was particularly not very STS because I was start, my objects were not scientific, um, except the ghost hunters um, who would come in with their um, with their technology that ostensibly could um, detect ghostly presence inside uh, um, the prison. And they would sort of say that this is very rigorous scientific work. This is evidence of of ghosts, of phantoms. and uh, I sort of had to sort of pause and, and not immediately have this knee-jerk reaction and say that's not science, you know. That's that's not what we do as communication scholars. For example, we take these seriously. So if I if I thought well, if that's not if if I could take this seriously as maybe it is science, then how could how could I analyze it? Because um, you know, taking Kligman seriously as a scientist, saying that this is science, and I and I have a a critique around that, I have a strong critique around that and then to then I should sort of be able to bring that to this um, to this practice of ghost hunting without sort of pejorative pejoratively calling it pseudoscience when I wouldn't call uh, Kligman's work pseudoscience, even though some of his work might be called that.
2: Great. Yeah. your writing on the prison itself and your experience there is really, really evocative. Could you say a little bit more uh, on how you think about the ruins and how you're trying to conceptualize a ruin?
1: Yes, the ruins. It's there's a I. I. Yeah there's this is where like a lot of art history and museum studies sort of help me think about ruins um ruins as history as um Uh, ephemeral objects uh you know gesturing to memory to the flow of time and i was really having a hard time trying to maintain my sts um (laughs) uh, uh identity with with all of that but basically you know um uh context matters and so i noticed that you know this ruin of holmesburg yes it's that's what it is now it's not being used to incarcerate anybody now um so functionally it's not a prison anymore um but it's not exactly you know a museum space either it's not being well preserved like eastern state is um so so what is it now if it's not the lab that i wanted it to be you know it's falling apart and it it made me it made me look to what um what our prisons what our prison industrial complex looks like now um yes we shut this prison down but it it kind of indexes ironically paradoxically this fantastic uh, rise of the prison industrial complex right so this ruin that um might be theorized oh this is the the end of an era it's it's actually the beginning of 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 something um and so i i talk about it this ruin as a model that this is the 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 iterations of um what we now call today the prison industrial complex
2: yeah um that's a really helpful way to think about it how the the ruins the the um the closing of that one particular site dated from the you know the the 19th century was in, an index for the mass incarceration a huge expansion of uh prisons right mm-hmm. around that time um and in, th- in thinking about um the expansion of these kinds of Programs. I want to move into chapter four, the last chapter of the book, in which you're thinking about bioethics mm-hmm. and the emergence of the captive test subject as a, a quote unquote vulnerable subject in American regulation and, and bioethics in generally. And how this move, um, what it in part does is actually uphold the possibility of research on incarcerated people. So by creating a a set of rules around it, it actually upholds this Mm -hmm. the the very practice. Um, So actually what I did wanna ask you on the theme of of bioethics, not explicitly in this this chapter four, was if you could give us a few words on your own ethics of reproducing
1: Mm -hmm.
2: this. And so how you're thinking about the reparative work can be done by reproducing the very images that you're calling into uh, your critiquing
1: oh yes absolutely this this chapter was the one that really made me reflect on my own uh research ethics so so for the first couple chapters of the book it was always how knowledge production by experts who are exploiting um, prisoners. And then I analyze bioethicists who are themselves also producing knowledge um, that is supposed to serve um, prisoners, but then ends up not really doing that. And that led me to think, like, well, what, what am I doing? I'm also entering the prison and I'm and and studying it. And it made me think about, you know, the long work of um of of scholars and activists studying these spaces we don't we actually don't want to study this anymore we just want it gone you know the object of our research we don't want it to exist really Um, and so what does it mean to produce knowledge about a thing that you're trying to dismantle so you don't have to produce knowledge about it anymore what does that look like and so I didn't answer it in the book I was totally because I felt like I was unprepared to to do so, but what does a bioethics, an abolitionist bioethics look like? Um, and my I my gesture towards an answer would be, you know, what was happening before the bioethics commission began their in- investigations? Um, we had the civil rights movement we had the black Power movement we had black leaders being targeted assassinated or incarcerated um and so it's it seems that the demands of black power were in were not reformist in the way that bioethics demands were in relation to the prison and so um that's I, I tried to maintain that abolitionist approach to STS in, in the book by ending on that note and preserving it. I have now um, analyzed the internal workings of medical science in prisons. And so, um, you know, the what the Black Power movement offers in their uncompromising um, statement of armed self-defense against the state, you know, as, and systemic change, the eradication of a prison nation, what would that look like for those of us who study the sciences, who critique the sciences, and who want to formulate ethics, ethical practices in relation to sciences, and then in relation to our own work? What do, what would that look like? Um, so the book ends with that. I don't answer it. I'm I'm starting to get a better idea of what that might look like in my newer work now um and so I feel like I'm more prepared to answer that question now but definitely in the book it's that's it's kind of where I end um and I'm sorry for that <laughs> that it's unsatisfying
2: no I think it, it's um it's very inviting I mean the mm-hmm. entire notion of a reparative bioethics uh, mm-hmm. I mean the um, yeah how how to even think about that um, and Reagan I, I wonder if you could kind of wrap us up on that on that issue as well. In chapter four, you mentioned how prison participation in experiments might have constituted a form of empowerment and enabled prisoners to mitigate the coercive nature of imprisonment. This presented an interesting turn in the discussion as most of the chapter draws attention to the prisoners' inherent lack of power um, during prison
1: experimentation.
2: You touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you explain for our listeners whether you think there is a real possibility of empowerment for prisoners or is prisoner agency an illusion?
1: I wouldn't call it an illusion. Um, I think there are pockets of agency that are very specific to imprisonment that is possible. I want to say that. Um, But let me think about this for a second. This is a good question. Hmm. Could you repeat a little bit of it again? Yeah, of course.
2: Um, I said, could you explain for our listeners whether you think there is a real possibility of empowerment for prisoners or is agency an illusion?
1: Yes, yes. So what I would say is that The prison space creates desperate conditions of survival. And so forms of agency that can be theorized in this space has to take that into account that exercises of uh, of these agency are being done in desperate conditions. But then we can also ask, is that agency, if it is done in desperate conditions? Because in bioethics, isn't that called coercion? And so the, the, the language that we use um, or uh, the frameworks that we use to talk about agency shifts. Like what is agency here? You know, and what does what would agency do, you know, for us? For the Bioethics Commission, what was very important for them was to imagine a a prison subject who was like other subjects of abuse. So someone who is a subject of human rights. So their approach to making medical science experiments in prison more ethical is through reform, right? Maybe if There were more jobs in prisons, and if they paid better, maybe more prisoners wouldn't feel so pressured to uh, participate in in these research programs. Maybe if we had more doctors and nurses and trained medical staff in prisons, um, prisoners wouldn't join these experiments just so they could receive medical attention and care. Maybe if prison conditions weren't so violent, um, prisoners wouldn't join these programs just so they could have a relatively safer space in prisons. Maybe if prison life or prison existence wasn't so um, empty, you know, where people are just passing the time, maybe they wouldn't feel pressure to uh, join uh, uh, these research programs just so they can do something right um so that's a reformist approach how do we make the prison space a better space for these kinds of things that's that's a that's a different um that's a that's a definition of agency and empowerment that i am trying to critique in the book because even the even the federal bureau of prisons or like um no, we're just going to summarily end these programs in our prisons because we don't want to adopt these reforms because that defeats the purpose of imprisonment, because the prison is supposed to be this dehumanizing. So even the Federal Bureau of Prisons say, no, they're not supposed to have this idea of agency that you, you think that they should have. So that's a very good question. I think that... Um, to to think about the possibility of agency, we have to define what we mean by that first.
2: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That basically we can't tweak our way to abolition. Yes, that's, that's not how it works. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for this for this conversation, and really for your remarkable book. Um, it really brought together, I think, an important and um, and helpful ways, generative ways for us, the relationship between knowledge, between science and freedom. And um, one of the things that you say towards the end of the book is that what you're what you're really trying to do here in this part in this project, and I think a lot of us are um, behind you on this. So um, really um, rallying behind you is to push the liber- liberatory limits of political legibility um, towards the eradication of a prison nation. So thanks so much for showing us how that can be done. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, this has been an interview by Laura Stark, Lali Dia, Halsey and Guy,
1: Justin McClain, Reagan Kelly, and Sonali Proman.